Okay, so this is March 27, 2011 in Hilo, Hawaii. So, as we all know, hopefully as we all know, our goal of life, what's our goal of life? To have fun. Okay, well actually, actually, uh, Srila Prabhupada one time gave that as an answer. South America, and he was asked, what is the purpose of life? And he said, Ananda. Or pleasure. So how do we find the most pleasure? By serving Krishna. By having a loving relationship with Krishna. So does that mean we just have a loving relationship with Krishna? It's just us and Krishna? There's Radharani's there, okay. Actually, Raghunath Dasko Swami Manashiksha says that once one has established one's loving relationship with Krishna, he turns you over to Radharani and she's in charge. But is it just Radha and Krishna? Is that it? Just us and Radha and Krishna? 33 million devotees. Okay, so there's a lot. There's, you know, we think there's a lot of people on this planet, but this planet is just a little speck in the universe. So there's a whole, uh, Rupa Goswami describes in the Radha Krishna Ganadesh Deepika, a whole huge village in Goloka Vrindavan full of so many different friends and relatives and everyone having their eternal relationships. So if we want to enter into our eternal loving relationships with Krishna, with all of the pure devotees in the spiritual world, that's our goal. Then we need to pick up what is the mood of somebody who enters there. Just like if you want to work for a particular company. Anybody here ever want to work for a company or everybody, no one here works? Anybody here who works? Not for a company. Not for a company. Uh-huh. So if you want to do that, you have to understand what is the mood of the company, right? Or if you want to come here, you have to understand what's the mood of coming here. I remember the first time I visited a temple, uh, as one of my high school friends brought me, and I was thinking, okay, temple, it's going to be some sort of sacred place, I better make sure I wear a dress. I can't wear my blue jeans. So I, I didn't know, I mean, I'd never been to a Hare Krishna temple before, but I thought, okay, religious place, I shouldn't come in blue jeans. So a very simple thing, if you're going to go to a very high-class restaurant, anybody here ever go to a high-class restaurant? Few people, okay. Nobody ever works for companies or goes to restaurants, but you, know, you, have, you go there in a particular, you have to pick up what is the mood, what is the dress code, how do people behave. So if you're going to do that, the best thing is that you get trained by somebody who knows, somebody who's already in that mood, or if you travel to another country. Anybody here ever travel to another country, or everybody just stays in Hilo? <laughs> so you want to pick up something of the culture. How do people behave there? What's considered acceptable, what's not considered acceptable, because that can vary greatly from one culture to another. What am I supposed to do? 
So you can say, well, why do we have to learn that from somebody? Because it's our natural position to be in the spiritual world with Krishna. It should all just come naturally. But the problem is that even though in one sense it's natural, once you become rebellious, then you have to learn that which would have come naturally. Just like it's very natural to breathe. But if you take up a habit of smoking, then you have to learn how to you have to learn how to breathe naturally again without smoke. Isn't it like that? You have to go through some treatment process to learn what if you hadn't smoked would have just been there. And people who smoke, they've developed all sorts of habits with their smoking. And then they have to learn, okay, what do people who don't smoke, what do they do with their hands when they're bored? Isn't it like that? So we learn from the great devotees, and one devotee we learn from particularly is Rupa Goswami. In fact, all of us in the what's called the Gaudiya Sampradaya, the school of bhakti, coming from Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, we're all considered to be followers of Rupa Goswami. So I'm sure that at least most of us here are familiar with Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, the avatar of Krishna, who comes as a devotee, and you can see his deity form there on the altar. So we're particularly interested in this avatar, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, as understood by his follower, Rupa Goswami. There are many, many branches of the Chaitanya tree, and different branches have different kinds of relationships with Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Even the personalities we read about in Chaitanya Charitamrita. There's Swarudama Goswami, there's Sarvabhama Bhattacharya, there's even uh, Lord Nityananda. They're each relating with Chaitanya Mahaprabhu in a particular way. But we're especially interested in the way that Rupa Goswami is relating to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. We are servants of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu in the mood of Rupa Goswami, and that's our ticket. That's our ticket. And when you're entering into an atmosphere of people who are much more high class than you, has that ever happened? Anybody here ever done that? Mm-hmm. You've gone someplace where the people were much more sophisticated or educated or something wealthy than you were, that you had to have a ticket to get in. You had to have somebody to take you by the hand and say, okay, you're coming with me. So we're all followers of Rupa Goswami. He's the one who's taking us by the hand. And of course, he's taking us by the hand because we have a present link through our spiritual master. Otherwise, he doesn't even know who we are. Otherwise, Rupa Goswami says, who are you? And some people think, well, all I have to do is know the mood of my spiritual master, but one should also know the mood of our spiritual master's boss. And our spiritual master's boss, if we're followers of Rupa Goswami, is Rupa Goswami, to understand something of his mood. So another reason to study something of Rupa Goswami is that it's really nice. We say the goal of life is to have fun. So Rupa Goswami is an expert at having fun. So we might think a person who's expert at having fun is someone who knows how to take the right intoxicant you know, how to order the right meal at a restaurant, how to expertly attract the members of the opposite sex, how to get a lot of money, but that's not really expertise in having fun. All of those things are superficial and temporary, and they don't give us unlimited happiness. So Rupa Goswami really, really knows how to have fun. 
he knows how to be a member of the eternal party. When Krishna's avatar, Varaha, entered into the spiritual sky, the Bhagavatam says that he entered into the world where there was an eternal festival. So Rupa Goswami knows how to be part of that eternal festival. And yet another reason, I'm sure there's many more that I haven't thought of, but another reason to enter into the moods of Rupa Goswami is that we're engaged in performing bhakti yoga. And bhakti, Srila uh, Prabhupada translates as devotional service. So service is something that you do, and devotion is your mood. It's, it's interesting, of course, Srila Prabhupada got this definition from Rupa Goswami's definition of bhakti. That there's two kinds of actions, internal and external. So how do we pick up the mood? Because if you just do the external devotion, if you just do the external service, that only takes you up to a certain point. The beginners in bhakti think that bhakti is all about behaviors. And the madhyam, the middle devotee, understands that it's about mood. For the uttam devotee, that's a little different. For them, it's, it's all about a deep exchange. But how are we going to pick up this mood? How are we going to go from being mechanical and being neophyte to coming to the higher levels where we actually have steadiness and taste and attachment? So that means we have to pick up the mood. And how are we going to pick up the mood? We have to understand what is the mood of somebody who's on a higher platform. In one sense, you could say the middle devotee is kind of borrowing the mood of the advanced devotee. So those are many, many reasons why we should enter into the mood of Rupa Goswami. And of course, Rupa Goswami is also Rupa Manjari. And he's functioning in both worlds. He's functioning both as a great scholar, a former government minister, who's serving Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, and he's, ser- he's functioning also as a young village girl who's assisting Radha and Krishna. So I thought that to enter into the mood of Rupa Goswami, there's several ways to do that. One is to study his teachings on philosophy, which he's given many of, the no- most notable of which is the Bhakti Samrita Sindhu and the Upadeshamrita. But I thought another way to do that is to enter into his own songs and prayers. So Rupa Goswami wrote many, many songs, and been, most of them have been collected into a book called the Stava Mala. So this song we're going to look at tonight is one of the songs from the Stava Mala. And, and I thought this was a pr- particularly appropriate because not only does it really give us Rupa Goswami's mood, but also it gives the key for hope for the hopeless. So if you've ever feel that attaining spiritual perfection is hopeless, anyone ever feel that way? That attaining spiritual perfection is hopeless, at least for me. Maybe it's hopeful for that person and that. Maybe I can see how they can do it, but I can't figure out how I can do it. That I read about. Of course, when you first take up bhakti yoga, you read about perfection. You say, oh, that's easy. I can do that tomorrow. But after some time, you see that although the externals are fairly easy, that really having the internal purification is a lot harder than you thought. And as things go on, then you may feel the gulf between where I am and where I want to be is something that I'm never going to be able to bridge. 
You know, do you know the story of Ramachandra and the monkeys and the bridge over Lanka? So Ramachandra and his army were on the on the southernmost part of India. They wanted to go to the island of Lanka and there was an ocean. And how were they going to cross? Impossible. Even before that, when the monkeys were there, only one monkey could do it. The other monkeys, they were saying, well, maybe I could get halfway. Or maybe I could jump there, but I couldn't jump back. So it may seem like that, that we're looking over, you know, okay, there's our destination. And there's no way that we can jump or build a bridge. How are we going to get there? So this is a very nice song for bringing hope to the hopeless. I first I thought we'd just go through the song. And then we'll go through and meditate on each verse in a very deep way. Okay, first we'll just read it and hopefully at the end of the class, if there's time, we can sing it. So the refrain is Deva Bhavantam Vande. Manmanasa Madukanam Arpayanijapada Pankaja Makanande. Oh Lord, I offer my respectful obeisances to you. Please paste the bumblebee of my mind in the honey of your lotus feet. And you'll see that this, this theme goes throughout this very short song. Now I want you to notice in texts 1 and 2 that we're going to have some repeating words, yadyapi and tadapi. So yadyapi samadishu vidirapaskanti natava nakagramarichin idemichyami nisamyam tadajucha O infallible Lord, although even the demigod Brahma cannot see in meditation a single ray of light from the tip of your toenail, still as I hear of the wonderful waves of your mercy, I yearn to see you. <coughs> Text 2. Bhakti Rudan Chati Yadyapi Madhava Natwai Mamatila Matri Padameshvarata Tadapi Tadadika Durgata Gata Navidatri. O Madhava, Although I have not even a sesame seed of devotion for you, your supreme power can make even the impossible become possible. I am avilo latayadya sanatana kalita buta rasabharam nevasatu nityamiham ritanindini vindan maruri masaram. O eternal Lord, may the bumblebee of my mind, finding there the most wonderful sweetness, eternally stain the honey of your lotus feet, which rebukes the sweetest nectar. Is your translation a little different from that? It's basically. Basically. Okay, let's go through this. Let's start at the refrain. So, Deva Bhavan Tambande. Bhava can mean many things in Sanskrit. It can mean existence, emotion. It has a lot of the form to be. But in this case, it means you. And Vande is such a nice word. Vande means both prayer and obeisances. Deva means God. So to my dear Lord, to you, who are full of emotion and existence, I offer my prayerful obeisances. Man manasa, man is my, manasa, my mind. Madukaram, madukaram is a bumblebee. Madukaram also means a mendicant who begs a little bit at everybody's home. Right? Who doesn't ask too much from anyone, just like Shravan was doing Madhukari with his asking for $15 each from each person. That's Madhukari. So he doesn't want any, any one person to have to pay whatever it is, the three or $400. So the mendicants, instead of going to one person's house and that person has to make 
rice and dal and japatis and vegetable and sweet and this and that and they have to cook for six hours in the kitchen. They get a japati from this person and a rice from this person and that, so they're not a burden on anyone. So that's the madhukaris, the bumblebee, taking a little bit from each flower. Nija pada, pada is feet. Pankaja. So pankaja, that which grows from the mud. Ja means birth. Panka means mud. So that which grows from the mud, the lotus flower, one of the many words for a lotus flower. Makarande, makarande is honey. So it's, it's very interesting because there's many, many places in the, in the scriptures, in India's sacred literature, where the feet of Krishna are compared to a flower, particularly a lotus flower, and where Krishna's feet are described as having a sweet taste. So I know one devotee that decided that that must be a mistake, that feet couldn't have a taste, that they could have a smell, but not a taste. But we find that Krishna's feet are often described as having a taste. And in fact, we find that this word taste is often used in descriptions of spiritual life. Now, as a teacher, we're often instructed that our classes should be as multi-sensory as possible. That the more a person's senses are involved in learning, the better they learn. So we try to have something for people to see. You know, I, for example, I might have like a picture of honey and a picture of a bee here, and things for people to hear. But the most, the thing that's least used in teaching is taste. And how many lessons have you been to that involve taste? Now, I did it one time when I was uh, having to give a presentation on school finance. And our instructor had said, use as many senses as possible. And it was in an outside university, and I thought, let me distribute persona. So my friend made some lime green pies, and we made a dollar sign with whipped cream on each piece. And I compared that the money in the school is like food. I said, just like each of us need air, right? First thing we need is air. We need proper temperature. We need water. And then we need food. You can go for quite a while without food. So I said, the school, you know, most important thing, you need a teacher, <laughs> something you're teaching. Uh, but it's also nice to have some money. How long can you go without any money? And I said, and then with money, everybody wants a piece of the pie. Then I brought up my lime cream pie and gave out the pie. Yeah, but it's rare in, in a teaching situation that you use the sense of taste. It's the sense that we really think least about when we're engaged in learning something or describing something or in poetry. If I'm going to describe some place, I'll describe what it looks like, what it sounds like, what it feels like, what it smells like, but how often will I describe what it tastes like? Interesting, huh? But we find that in spiritual life, it's often described as taste. And my friend Chakra here asked me a while ago, he said, Grandma, does Krishna especially like sugar? He said, does Krishna like us that he particularly likes sweets? Remember when you asked me that? <laughs> so we were talking about how Krishna likes all tastes, sweet, sour, salty, bitter, pungent, and astringent. But he does particularly like sweet and we find that many things in relationship to Krishna are described in terms of sweet taste. 
In fact, the whole Goloka Vrindavan is described as the realm of Madhurya, the realm, realm of sweetness, and the conjugal ras is often called the Madhurya ras, the sweet ras. So Krishna's feet are actually sweet, actually have a taste. When Krishna liberated all the kings that Jarasandha had imprisoned, it's described that when they saw Krishna, they felt like they wanted to lick him. They wanted to experience that taste. And one friend of mine, a few years ago, called me up and said, Urmila, when they say the holy name tastes sweet, it's not a metaphor. It's literal. So Rupa Goswami is, is speaking about a very literal taste. And here he's comparing it to honey. Now keep that in mind as we get to the end because it goes far beyond honey. So he's comparing it to honey that he's a bumblebee. So the bumblebee likes to go to the flowers, but if the bumblebee has honey, it won't bother with the flowers. So you can keep a bee from going to flowers by putting out a container of honey, and then it won't go through all the trouble of gathering a little from this flower, a little from that flower. So in the material world, we're getting a few drops of nectar from this thing and that thing and this thing and that thing and this thing and that thing. But if we go to Krishna's feet, we get the honey. Not just one little drop here and there. All right, so that's what he wants. But now he has some problems. Yadyapi samadishu. Yadyapi is although. Samadishu in samadhi. So do you all know how to attain samadhi? Samadhi means you have to have a very regulated life. Never any nonsense. Never any nonsense. Never? Never. You have to withdraw your senses completely from the world. We all go into a state of samadhi, a mechanical state of samadhi in deep sleep. Where all of our senses are, we don't hear anything, we don't see anything, we don't feel anything. So you have to withdraw your senses, that's called prachitara. Then you have one pointed meditation on something, so that you don't notice anything in the world. That's samadhi. That's mechanical, mental samadhi. There's another level of samadhi, but that's not the level Rupa Goswami is speaking about here. So he's saying, even in samadhi, even vidhi, even one who's knowledgeable, even up to Brahma, who's got four brains. Natava nakagra. Naka is nails. Your nails, Marichan, the light, he can't see the light from your nails. So even if you don't do any nonsense ever, even for a moment, you have no awareness of the external material world. You're completely in trance. You can't see Krishna's tongues. We have another verse like this in Brahma Samhita. Right? Anybody know that verse? Anybody know the verse from Brahma Samhita that says that if you go at the speed of the mind or the wind for millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of years, you're not going to get to Krishna's toenails. Well, that's a problem if you want to taste the honey of Krishna's feet. Isn't it? I mean, 
if I want to eat a Hawaiian pineapple, even if I'm as far away from Hawaii as I can get, which I was just a couple weeks ago, all I have to do is go at the speed of an airplane for about 30 hours and I can get here. So if my goal is to taste a Hawaiian pineapple and I go at the speed of a jet for a day and a half, a little austerity, a little austerity, I can get here. But if I want the honey of Krishna's feet, if I want that sweetness, even if I go in samadhi, I can't even get to the toenail. I got there's a toenail, I can't get to the light from the toenail. Or to speak of the toenail. I can't even see the light from the toenail. So that's the problem. So do we give up? So if you want something that's wonderful, and no matter how qualified you are, you can't get even close to it, what will you do? So then he says, Idam Ichami, this thing, Ichami means desire. Idam Ichami, this thing I want. Nisamyam, by hearing about it. So I've heard about how wonderful is this honey of Krishna's feet. Therefore, I want it. Even though by going into samadhi, I can't even see the light from the toenail. So what am I going to do? Achuta. Achuta is somebody who never fails. So we all fail sometimes, right? And everyone we know fails sometimes. We make great plans. They don't always work. But Achyuta, Krishna's plans never fail. Tadachyuta, you are someone who never feels and fails. And Kripa Bhuta, Kripa is mercy. Adbhuta is wonderful. You have some kind of wonderful mercy. Vichyam is waves. So here in Hawaii, we're all familiar with waves. So his mercy is coming in waves. And it's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful mercy. That even though with my own endeavor, And the, the spiritual endeavor means to enter into samadhi. Spiritual endeavor doesn't mean like pounding rocks or something like that. That's the kind of hard, when we talk about hard work and spiritual life, we mean hard work to control the mind and the senses. So even though with that hard work, it's impossible, there's your waves of mercy. And I want this. Rupa Goswami is saying, I want it. I want it. And I, I know that you have amazing waves of mercy. Therefore, although otherwise it's impossible, I want it. And now, although he says he wants it, he speaks about his condition. And this is very interesting because if you could say, well, if you want it, then that is your spiritual qualification. But then he says, bhakti Udas Chati is to, to get up, to awaken. We often th speak of spiritual life as an awakening, as an enlightenment. And he says here, bhakti, this love and devotion, ujanti, yadyapi madhava, madhava is a name for Krishna, yadyapi, again we have although, natwai mama tila matri, tila is a sesame seed. So just think about how small a sesame seed. He says, I haven't woken up even one sesame seed. So I think, you know, if you're lying in bed and you want to wake up, you want to get out of bed, but if you haven't moved your head from the bed, even one sesame seed. 
So this is what Rupa Goswami is saying. He said, my bhakti has not arisen even one sesame seed. So I want it. Idami chami. I want it. But my problem is, not only could I not attain it through samadhi, but I haven't even begun one sesame seed of enlightenment. Now we might hear this and say, well, whew, if you haven't gotten a sesame seed of enlightenment, what about am I going to say about myself? Of course, one very interesting thing about spiritual life is that unlike material things where you achieve them and you master them, and then you say, okay, now I've mastered this, there's nothing else to do. In spiritual life, the more you master spiritual life, the more you feel yourself a beginner. And that's not because <laughs> you've not gotten anywhere, but it's because spiritual life is very dynamic. You know, people, when they first fall in love, it's very full of mystery and excitement. It's a little scary. Right? It's very thrilling. But generally in this world, after people have a long-term loving relationship, their love may get deeper and more meaningful, but a lot of that excitement and mystery is gone. I feel like, okay, now I really know this person. And people are often trying to do something to keep that initial excitement. Whereas one of my grandchildren was telling me how he got this keyboard, this electric keyboard, and we you know when he first got it, it was so exciting. And now he still likes it, but there's not the, whoa. So in bhakti, one always has this, whoa. Always has this initial excitement. Therefore, one always feels oneself at the beginning. No matter how far one goes, one always feels that there's excitement and mystery and adventure and the thrill of beginning. So Rupa Goswami is saying, I, I haven't even begun by a sesame seed to start to wake up, to start to rise, to have bhakti rise in me, to come to enlightenment. And then he says, Parameshvarata, very wonderful word. Parama is supreme. Ishvarata is power. It says, but you have supreme power. Sometimes when someone's lying in bed, if there's something wrong with them and they can't get up, you can take their hand and pull them with your superior power. But what is this power that Krishna is using to pull the devotee into enlightenment? When we think of power in this world, we often think of something like force, military power, economic power. Someone who knows more than you, who has more money than you, has more influence than you, has more physical strength than you. And there's some element of force or coercion involved. Now Krishna certainly has a lot of power at the, of that kind. I was speaking to a friend of mine who lives on the island and who was uh, severely injured in an accident. He, uh, he broke some of his ribs and I think one of his legs. And I had heard about it and I had, oh, he had an accident where he broke a lot of bones and damaged some internal organs and I naturally thought it was a car accident. But when he came over yesterday, he and his wife, he was describing it wasn't a car accident at all. He was swimming in the ocean 
and a wave picked him up and dashed him against the sand and broke five of his bones. One little wave. One little ordinary wave. Not even high tide wave or a tsunami wave. So Krishna has a lot of that kind of power. He has more of that kind of power than we can even imagine. I mean, how much of the ocean is contained in one tsunami? Nothing. Imagine if the whole ocean got up. One little earthquake, one little shat, you know, one little sh tiny shake for a couple seconds of the earth. So Krishna has that kind of power. But that's not the kind of power that Krishna uses to awaken bhakti. First of all, Krishna doesn't like to use force. It's not very pleasing. Now, we in the material world may sometimes find some sort of perverse pleasure in using force, but in loving relationships, it's very displeasurable. If I have to force somebody to do something, it interferes with a loving relationship. And in another sense, you can't really force someone, but that's another discussion. It's, it's actually not possible. Even if I say, I'm going to shoot you, if you don't do what I want, you can say, then shoot me. And sometimes people do say, well, then shoot me, rather than I'll do what you want. But anyway, that's not the kind of force Krishna is using. What is the power? What is Krishna's primary, most important shakti? Madhurya. Yes, the Madhurya Shakti, the Ladini Shakti, the power of, of this and this love and sweetness. And that power, of course, is Radharani herself. So it is this power of sweetness, of love and compassion. Harameshvarata. Tadapi. Again, we have this Yadyapi and Tadapi. Although it's impossible, Tadapi still it can happen. Tavadika Durgata Gatana. Dur is very difficult. Dur gata gatana. What's impossible you can make possible through your power. So we have two ways that Krishna is making this possible. One is through his mercy and one is through his power. Okay, so again in the beginning Rupa Goswami is saying how he wants to be a bee tasting Krishna's, the honey of Krishna's feet. Then he says through samadhi you can't even see the light from Krishna's toenails. But through the waves, through the waves of his mercy, it is possible. And then he says, I haven't gotten up, my bhakti hasn't gotten up even one sesame seed. But your power can make the impossible possible. Then in the last verse, Rupa Goswami is talking about something that's very important for anyone who wants to enter into spiritual life and attain spiritual perfection. He's talking about the here and the now. So perhaps we've heard that in the spiritual world, time is conspicuous by its absence. There's no past, present, and future. There's only the present. And material illusion begins. Does anyone know what material illusion begins with? What's the first step of the creation of this illusory world? Time, which is the glance of Mahavishnu. 
So there's Mahavishnu, and he's glancing, and this glance is time. This glance is also Shiva. It's time. So everything starts with time. And the first of the great material elements is space. But our concept of time in this world is the beginning of illusion. And one way that we get out of this illusion is by being here and now. Now, of course, there's many different spiritual paths that preach this way, because it's the truth. <laughs> so the Buddhists talk about this, they call it mindfulness, being very much in the here and the now. But this is one of the secrets of spiritual life. Bhaktivinoda Thakura talked about this, he was paraphrasing a famous British poet. He says, forget the past that sleeps and ne'er the future dream at all, but bear with times that are with thee in progress thee shall call. Generally, materialists are very concerned with either the past or the future. When they're looking at the past, they're generally lamenting. Either, why did I make that mistake in the past? If I had only done things differently, I'd be so much happier now. Or, I had so much happiness in the past, why is it gone? Or, they're looking to the future and they're hankering. When I get this thing in the future, when I get this job, when I get this car, when I, get, when I marry this person, when I can get rid of this person, <laughs> when I have this baby, when this baby grows up, when I make a lot of money, when I move here, when I get older, <laughs> when I can retire. You know, they're, they're always this carrot. We call this fruitive work. Fruitive work means future-oriented. I'm working for some future fruit, which may or may not come, and which may or may not be tasty when it comes. And it's very, it's very much connected with thinking that I am the doer. Focusing on past, present, and future is very much a focus on myself as the doer. I'm thinking I'm the doer, and my happiness is in the fruits of my doing. Whereas spiritual life means tasting the honey of a relationship with Krishna now and here. So this is what Rupa Goswami is saying here. He's saying, Ajya. Ajya is today. And he's saying, Iha, here. And he's talking about steadiness, being steady, staying. And he uses two words that mean forever, Sanatana and Nityan. I'm always staying here at your feet. I'm not going anyplace else. And it's very wonderful. He's saying that by staying here now at your feet, Adbhuta Rasa Bharam. Adbhuta, wonderful. Rasa. Rasa is the, the essential, again, taste of anything. Rasa is used in Ayurveda to mean the taste of something. And a food that's a rasayana, you eat it and you immediately digest it and feel energized by it. You ever had some food like that? You ate it and felt immediately energized. So, bottom, there's a huge quantity of this amazing rasa. And he's saying, Amrita Nindini, that it's better than the nectar of the gods. 
it defeats the nectar of the gods. Now, according to the Vedas, there are demigods, there are uh, celestial beings who drink nectar so that they can live for hundreds and thousands of years in a very youthful, uh, full of vitality body. The vitamin companies would love to get a sample of this. Right? They're always telling you that they already have it. Just take this herb and you will have a youthful, healthy, vital body forever. But here he's saying that this, this Adbhuta Rasa Bharam, it's Amrita Nindini, it, it defeats this Amrita. And what is it? Marurima Saram. Marurima, again we're going to sweetness. It is the best sweetness. So how is it that Rupa Goswami is attaining Krishna's feet through the waves of wonderful mercy, through Krishna's supreme power, which is the power of Radharani, of compassion, of love, of playfulness, of sweetness. And what is he doing? He is here and now always at Krishna's feet. So that is something that we can also do in our lives. Wherever we are, whoever we are, whatever we're doing, to be here and now at Krishna's feet. And how to remember that? Very simple. I am Krishna's servant, or I'm my guru's servant, I'm Rupa Goswami's servant, I'm Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's servant. And my goal is love. I am Krishna's servant and my goal is love. My goal is a loving relationship. And if I remember that, who am I? I'm a soul. I'm a soul and I'm a soul who's a bumblebee looking for him. That's my goal. My goal is that sweetness of love. Then what we should do in each circumstance at each moment will be crystal clear. What do I do right now? Well, I'm a soul who's a servant of Krishna. My goal is love. What do I do? What do I say? What do I eat? What do I watch? What do I listen to? With whom do I associate? Well, that's all becomes soft. I'm a servant of Krishna and my goal is love. Now and here. And what's interesting about that is if one does that now and here, then even if we feel that our bhakti hasn't arisen even by one sesame seed, and even if we feel millions of miles away even from the light of Krishna's toenails, still we will find ourselves diving and surfacing in an ocean of great nectar. So I urge you to, we didn't have time to sing the song, but I urge you to learn this song, and well, others, as well as other songs of the Acharyas, to meditate on them and to have them be the guiding principle for the mood of your devotional practices. Thank you very much. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna.